0: This is episode number 346, Reframing Our Mindset Around High Achievement and Perfectionism with Dr. Z. Welcome to the Sonia Looney Show. This is a podcast about high performance and well-being, and I'm your host, Sonia.
1: to pay attention to details, it's important to ask yourself three questions. The first question is, what's my motivation here? Am I chasing an outcome or am I chasing a process? The second question will be, am I trying to approach something like gain recognition from someone or being seen by others? Or I'm trying to avoid being a failure and feel like I'm not good enough. And the third question is, how am I holding my standards? Am I holding on to them with white knuckles while I'm holding them softly and flexible? So I think those three questions are the beginning to check whether your perfectionistic actions are helping to get closer to your values or pushing you farther away.
0: I just got back last night from my race that I went to in Brevard, North Carolina called the Pisgah Stage Race. And good news, I actually was able to win this race. It was a five-day mountain bike race and I'll be talking about it on a later podcast. But I surprised myself and I also really enjoyed racing amongst star-studded women's field. In fact, the women's field was even more competitive than the men's professional field. So that was pretty cool. And I also had the opportunity to connect with some friends, And I did two presentations on mental performance and well-being in Asheville and Brevard. And both of those were very well attended. So it was great to meet some of you and really fun to see your interest. One quick takeaway from the race that I also posted online was that a lot of times we think that we have to have this ideal or perfect preparation before we do something. And this race was something that was very expensive for my family and I to go to. We traveled across the country with my children. That means lots of plane tickets, that means bigger car, that means bigger lodging to house everybody. So it was an investment and I wasn't sure that I even wanted to go after getting sick and not being able to train at all for 2 weeks in March. But Matt, my incredibly supportive husband reminded me that we're not only going so that I can do well at the bike race. We're going because this is the type of family we want to be. This is the type of things that we want to do in our lives, regardless if we are ready for it 100% or not. That was an important reminder to me because things have changed since I had kids. Before having kids, I raced a ton and it didn't matter as much if I traveled somewhere far away for a race and maybe didn't have ideal preparation because it was just me going and it wasn't a massive financial investment to our family but now that we have children, it is a bigger financial investment and uprooting everybody to travel across the country is a big ordeal when you have a three and a one-year-old. So I felt a little bit guilty and a little bit unsure if I should even go to this race if I couldn't prepare in the way that I wanted to. Certainly it doesn't always work out where you don't prepare properly and then go and end up winning a race in a stacked field. That is an outlier, but it was a great reminder that the importance isn't how ready you feel the importance is the type of person that you want to be. And if you're always waiting for the right moment or the perfect preparation before you show up to something, you might be leaving a lot of opportunity and experience on the table. And I remember thinking to myself, before we even started the race in Pisgah, we did several things leading up to it that I already mentioned. And before even starting the race, the trip already felt like a win. So when you have a big goal and maybe you didn't have the right preparation that you were hoping for, asking yourself, Aside from the result, what would also make this a win? So that's kind of a nice segue into today's episode with Dr. Zarita Ona, and she is awesome. I really enjoyed this conversation with her. She is a licensed clinical psychologist who founded the East Bay Behavior Therapy Center, where she runs an outpatient program integrating acceptance and commitment therapy, or ACT, and exposure response prevention. She's experienced in working with children, adolescents, adults with OCD, trauma, anxiety, and emotional regulation problems. Her work is dedicated to helping clients get unstuck and live the life that they want to live. Her most recent book is called Acceptance and Commitment Skills for Perfectionism and High-Achieving Behaviors, Do things your way, be yourself, and live a purposeful life. And what I was just talking about, perfectionism and high achieving behaviors, a lot of us won't even show up to something because of those behaviors and that mindset. So in this episode, we tackle topics such as achievement, perfectionism, overworking, knowing what our values are, and so much more. In fact, some key takeaways is how to have a healthy relationship with high achievement, how to identify perfectionistic actions that you might be exhibiting what to do when you feel stuck, and also identifying the optimal amount of hard work because it's so easy to overwork, especially if you're passionate about something. We also talked about striving to be the best without comparison, and that is a huge challenge. And then we talked about celebrating success and celebrating success is something that high achievers really struggle to do. And that's something that I've been working on is celebrating Pisgah stage race. And that actually means telling people that I won the race. And I always feel a little bit embarrassed or a little bit uncomfortable, like I'm bragging or something when I do that. But telling people who would be genuinely excited for me about my result is a way that I am celebrating it. And that means pushing past the uncomfortable feeling of telling them that I won the race but celebrating your successes and figuring out the best way to do that for you and what feels right is so important because we work so hard to do things in our lives. And then we'll just quickly move on to the next thing. Something that I also focus on is getting right back to my process after an event. I give myself time to celebrate it or give myself time to be disappointed if I need to be disappointed. And then I ask what I can learn and then I get back to work. One of the ways that I'm doing that is using the ever athlete training platform. And I started using it last year. It's the ultimate resource for endurance athletes, and it has strength training, recovery, and injury rehab programs designed by physical therapists, sports chiropractors, and coaches, and even some of the best endurance athletes on the planet. Every athlete has everything that you need to perform your best. I personally like their core workouts, their run strong program and their ride strong program. So I do a bit of everything and their workouts are actually really fun. I previously skimped on strength and mobility training because I just thought it was boring, but they move at a great pace and there is a progression there. And you also know that you are doing the right things to support your body so that you can not only be stronger and more efficient tomorrow, but also as you age so that you can have longevity in your sport. Make sure you check out the episode I recorded with Dr. Matt Smith, the founder of Everathlete uh, a couple weeks ago. That was a really powerful episode and it really motivated me to stay on it. And I have a 50K running race that I'm doing, a trail running race in three weeks. I've never done a 50K before. This is another example of feeling a little bit unprepared, and maybe there's a bit of a theme here, but the biggest challenge of my life has been sickness because the kids are always sick and they're always getting me sick. So that means I haven't been able to train running the way that I've wanted to train. And I'm hoping that this work that I have done using the EverAthlete training platform over the last several months will help me stay injury-free as I go into uncharted territory. If you want to give the Everathlete training platform a try, all the videos are on demand and they even can do a one-on-one assessment, which I did with Dr. Matt and learn some things about my body. So you can get 25% off for the first three months of training using the code Looney, and that's L-O-O-N-E-Y. That is in the show notes. There's a membership sign-up link. And if you try Everathlete out, I'd love to hear how it is benefiting you because there is always going to be something to improve upon. All right, let's get into today's episode with Dr. Z. Patricia, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you so much for having me. Very much appreciate it.
0: We're just talking about the high energy vibes and just energy in general that we're both bringing today. And I'm excited for the guests to feel it too.
1: <laughs> yeah, I have been a big fan of your vibraciousness in your podcast. <laughs> so I'm excited to share our energies together in this episode. <laughs>
0: Yeah, so today I'm really excited about our conversation. And I was also really interested in your book about perfectionism and high achievers because I thought, wait a minute, I think this book is written for me. So, Mm -hmm. (laughs) can you first start with why you wrote this book? Yeah,
1: and thank you for asking that question. Well, the background story is that I am an immigrant, I am a woman, I have been in many circles in which I have to push myself to work harder and harder to get certain outcomes. And in my process of pursuing certain goals and certain accomplishments, there have been times in which I was lost, chasing an outcome, chasing to be seen by others, even though I didn't have control of those reactions. And in my work, I specialize on acceptance and commitment therapy, and I work exclusively with overthinkers and overachievers dealing with any form of fear-based struggles. So in my work, I also hear from my clients that struggles with pursuing perfection with high achievements, with a striving and perfectionistic actions. So I think it was my personal experience, knowing how, when you duplicate about something, of course you want to get things right and perfectly. It makes sense. And my clients relate it to the mindset. However, the whole world, especially the last 20 years, tell us you should drop those standards. Don't work as hard as you need, just let it go. But the reality is that those messages can be extremely alienating when you deeply care about some stuff. And also they don't work because quite often high achievers, they they are pursuing what is important to them with a lot of caring because it matters. So imagine that someone tells you, Sonia, don't worry about the quality of your podcast. Don't worry about the microphone or the audio, just let it go. How will that be for you? <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. Someone <laughs> actually said something like that to me around my newsletter. It was around when I had a newborn and I said, it's really important to me that I stay consistent with this. And they said, Oh, don't worry. It's, it's not a big deal. But to me, it was.
1: Yeah, yeah. So you have direct experience as my clients and myself that when we deeply care about things, this message is about dropping our standards. That You know, they, they actually don't match with what matters to us, with our values. It just happens that we have to find ways to pursue what matters to us with flexibility, to hold our values lively instead of holding them as rules, right? So I realized in my personal life, Every time my students will tease me with being a workaholic or working too much, or I will hear from my clients their experience, i realize that it is important to avoid demonizing, perfectionistic, and high achieving actions, and to help people to accept themselves as they are with their proneness to do things right and perfectly because they deeply care, and to teach them active skills to hold those, that proneness and those behaviors lively instead of holding them as rules. So the book came from my personal experience and my work with clients and noticing that literature has dichotomized perfectionistic behaviors as black and white or good and bad. But the reality is that there is a group of people that deeply care about doing things right and perfectly. And I think it's important to have a skills and a mindset that can hold that with caring and with compassion. So that's the story.
0: Yeah, I think it's really interesting whenever we think about striving and trying to achieve things because we think about where is this coming from? And mm-hmm. I know personally, you know, I used to try to achieve things to prove that I was good, to prove that I was worthy, seeking external validation instead of from my values. Mm-hmm. And that's something that I I still struggle with, but not nearly like I used to. So in terms of striving and achieving and perfectionism, how do we number one realize where that's coming from, and then number two, how do we strive from a healthy place without getting too overly indexed on this external validation piece?
1: Mm-hmm. When I think about perfection, as a high achieving. I'm thinking about the outcome of different psychological processes. I think that perfectionistic actions are driven by a strong fear of making mistake, a strong fear of being a failure rules about how things are supposed to be or how others are supposed to be, and a strong attachment to the sense of self defined by our accomplishments. So the combination of these psychological processes drives perfectionistic actions. Now, answering your question specifically, I see when a person is prone to do things right and perfectly, to pay attention to details, it's important to ask yourself three questions. The first question is What's my motivation here? Am I chasing an outcome or am I chasing a process? The second question will be Am I trying to approach something like gain recognition from someone or being seen by others? Or I'm trying to avoid being a failure and feel like I'm not good enough? And the third question is How am I holding my standards? Am I holding on to them with white knuckles or I'm holding them softly and flexible? So I think those three questions are the beginning to check whether your perfectionistic actions are helping to get closer to your values or pushing you farther away. There are many areas in which perfectionistic actions can show up in the way that we're running a podcast, in the way that we are parenting, in the way that we are relating to food or to our bodies, in the way that we're approaching our friendships or romantic relationships. So every time that we find ourselves with this feeling that says you have to do more, it's not enough. Watch out. You may make a mistake. Watch out. You may not be a good friend right now. We have to check what you're chasing. Am I trying to approach something or avoid something? And how am I holding my standards? I think those key questions are going to help people to distinguish whether your perfectionistic actions are effective or ineffective in your life.
0: Yeah, those three questions are really powerful. And also the fears that you mentioned, fear of mistakes, of failures, of rules. And you also mentioned um, defining the self based on accomplishments. And I think that In some ways, we are defined by that in our society. Like people ask, like, "Oh, what do you do?" Like, I I hate asking people what do you do for work whenever I meet them because I don't want them to have to define themselves based on what they do, which is partially related to accomplishment. So, you know, talking about accomplishment and defining sense of self, how should we define sense of self, either without tying it to accomplishment or, or gently tying it to accomplishment? (laughs) Yeah, that's such a
1: such an important question, right? And there are so many ways to answer it. I think I will start by sharing that um, it does make sense that when you duplicate about something and you you get a particular outcome, you feel proud of yourself, right? I mm-hmm. think there is a lot of intrinsic motivation when you're prone to do things right, when you are a striver, right? And there is nothing wrong with that. What is important is to check if I only think of myself based on that dimension if i'm thinking of patricia oh she's an author and that's all what i am um i think it's important to imagine there is one act exercise it's a values-based exercise in which you invite people to imagine what will your romantic partner or what your ch- child or what your best friend will say about you if you are celebrating your 80th birthday like I would ask myself, Patricia, if your best friend will be in your party and you're celebrating a your birthday, what would you like them to say about you? What would you like them to say about how you live your life? And I think when we practice some values-based exercises or do some values-based exercises, we're going to unpack a little bit that there is a different, there are different areas in our lives. And there are different ways that being on the world that were not defined necessarily only by our accomplishments. I think sometimes of our, our identity more like a canvas, right? We're containers of different experiences, we're containers of different feelings, different emotions, and also different stories about who we are. So in ACT terms, in acceptance and commitment therapy, we talk about the selves in context, there is a self, there is a part of us that is all the time doing, talking, like you and I were doing right now. There is a part of us that observe these experiences as if we're watching our life in a movie. And there is a certain in context that is the container and the canvas of all these aspects of who we are. So I think it does make sense that we are going to be over-identify ourselves with our accomplishments. There is nothing wrong with that. The challenge is that when we hold on to that identity as the only thing that defines us, because then what happens when we want to reach an outcome that we're chasing, which is a lot of times, right? Things are going to go wrong. It, that's just the game of life, right? So let me just step back and doing some values-based exercises or perspective-taking exercises, help us to step back again and notice that. We are containers and holders of these experiences as things that that we have, not the things that define us.
0: Yeah, something that sort of stuck out to me when you were talking was talking about that mental time travel piece to your 80th birthday yeah. and how you live your life. And when you think about what we were just talking about, if you're achievement-oriented and only defining yourself based on your achievements, at your 80th birthday, you would start talking about how you've achieved things in your life. What what has this 80-year-old person achieved versus mm. how this person has lived their life? And those are actually two separate things.
1: Yeah, yeah. I love that distinction you're making because the how you have achieved, I think, will speak about the process, right? Like, it will be really hard for me if my partner said, yeah, Patricia was very, very busy chasing to be seen by others and chasing to be annoyed <laughs> by others, right? <laughs> and we're like, oh man. <laughs> so I will hope my partner will say Patricia was doing her best to to live a fulfilling life and being caring with the people she loves, right? So I think when we look at our values, um there are other exercises within us that we can we can we can practice. It will give us a sense of what really matters to us and who really we are, right? We're not these stories. We're not our accomplishments. We can enjoy them, but they don't have to define us.
0: So when you were talking about perfectionism, one of the things that you mentioned was body image, and it made me think about disordered eating Hmm. and how potentially certain high-achieving behaviors or perfectionist behaviors could be a grasp for control. Hmm. So can you talk about whether perfectionism is a grasp for trying to control something because you don't you have fear of uncertainty or fear of something that could happen?
1: Yeah, I think there is a lot of um, writings that, that conceptualize perfectionistic actions and describing actions as a form of control. And, and I think first what I want I would like to do is normalize that response. When you deeply care about things, and you're prone to get things and do things right and perfectly, it is scary when you don't know how the outcome is going to go. It is scary that someone, you know, out of the blue, something changes or people change their mind or people change their behaviors. My clients, and I have experienced this myself, when you think about the fear of making mistakes, it's a very different type of feeling. The possibility that someone may see that you're a fraud or the possibility that someone may think that you're not good enough is petrifying, right? It's a different type of feeling. So in those moments, It is human to do everything you can to minimize that particular feeling, to get rid of that feeling, to suppress that feeling. So it is human that a part of us in those moments of a stuckness, of course, when we try to control everything, control the outcome, maybe control other people's behaviors, maybe control what you think of me in this podcast. (laughs) So I want to start by saying that It is human to respond with some controlling behaviors when we get stuck because we deeply care. Not because we want to torture people, not because we're masochists. but because we deeply care. So it's human to jump into these places over control. So there is a lot of writings that have think of perfectionist in that way. What I would like to do is one normalize and also add a piece of compassion because in those moments, and I can tell you this personally, and also I have heard this from my clients directly, it feels like a dilemma. It feels like you're holding a dialectic, right? On the one hand, you are scared of letting it go of those standards and those controlling behaviors because maybe you're scared of the outcome. On the other hand of dialectic, if you don't do anything about it, it feels, feels bad, feels uncomfortable. So it's a catch 22. So I think these controlling responses are human. We can learn to handle them with compassion without judging ourselves. And we can also learn to respond to them in a more effective way by going back to our values. When we feel like controlling another person's behaviors because they have disappointed us, because they have said the wrong thing, or or when I feel that I'm gaining three extra pounds that I didn't want to gain, or because my child is doing something that reflects on my parenting style, right? And I may feel like controlling those those instances, I will invite people to acknowledge that it is hard. It's a moment of stuckness. And it's a moment when you want to ask yourself, what's my value in this situation? How do I want to respond to this right now? Versus judging ourselves. The only reason why it's important for me to normalize these responses is because again, there is a lot of literature looking at high achievers as over controlling people. When we hold into these labels, right? We forget to look at people as people interacting in a context of people who are reaching a moment of stuckness. It's easy to label behaviors, but I think it doesn't help a person to get unstuck or going to box their behavior, right? So I think if we can really go back to the root of this, these over-controlling behaviors are the outcome of feeling stuck and feeling that you have two bad choices in front of you. If you don't do anything, the outcome will be bad if you if if you let go of you know trying to control the outcome, you're going to be anxious and scared, so knowledge and moment of stagnant is a much more compassionate way to understand these controlling responses that we all may engage with our lives at some point.
0: yeah, this really sounds like a habit loop, like Dr. Judd Brewer always talks about habit loops and anxiety is a habit loop, and the feeling stuck you know being A cue, and then the behavior, trying to control everything, and noticing this habit loop can help you get unstuck from it. And it sounds like one of the the bigger better offers, um, using his words, is acceptance and compassion. Mm -hmm. But uh, how can people practice this acceptance and this compassion piece? Because when you're in the moment and you're 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 almost like triggered, or you're feeling these strong emotions, to accept that it's okay, and you don't have to push the emotions away, but to let them in. And then to choose how you respond, because it sounds good when you say it, but I think for a lot of people, it'd be really hard to practice that in the moment.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. Right. In those moments, you <laughs> know, we would be like throwing, throwing by the window, any skill we, ha- we have learned, right? So thank you for asking that question. So what I will invite people when they encounter this moment of a stuckness, one is that we have to, I think, tap into how it feels in your body. Our emotions, our feelings start with sensations in our body. If we look at our internal experience, we know when we're getting triggered. If your heart is beating fast, you have shortness of breath, or sometimes you may have this urge to do more and more, right? You have to work extra harder and harder. So when you notice these internal cues, that is the cue that you are reaching a moment of stuckness and also a moment of choice. So the first thing to do is to ground yourself. There are different ways to ground yourself and use your body as a way to bring yourself back to the present, as a way to get out of the what ifs into the what is. You may want to press your feet really hard against the floor, for example. You may want to wiggle your toes. You may want to, um, you know, step back a little bit and roll your shoulders back. You may want to take a deep breath intentionally. And you may want to check what you're sensing in your body right now. It doesn't have to be the perfect name, but you may want to say, okay, there's butterflies in my stomach. I have this urge kicking in to do more and more. And in those moments, you have a choice to make because those sensations are going to push you to do something, to say something. And you may want to say, you may want to also check what is important for me, what really matters to me in this moment. How do I want to show up? Ask about your values. And then ask yourself, what will be the behavior that is consistent with this value in this moment? So the choice comes between doing what a sensation or the fear of making a mistake or the fears of being a failure push you to do or what your values ask you to do in that moment. Sometimes it is a choice to do nothing and to say, I am going to wait for the next five minutes. Or to coach yourself to manage that emotion you can use acceptance prompts in this moment i am going to do the best i can to watch this emotion coming and going i'm going to see how this emotion comes and goes without doing anything besides watching i am going to imagine that this emotion is like a wave in the ocean that has an ebb and has a flow i am going to do the best i can to notice my thoughts how they are coming and coming without acting on them. So we can do some self-talk as a form of coaching like ourselves. Notice that these, these acceptance pros or coaching list statements are not about the outcome, are not about saying it's going to be good, everything is going to be fine, because we don't know. The coaching statements is about noticing our internal experience and observing for what it is. So those will be some micro skills to handle these moments of stuckness. So we don't go into this automatic pilot way of responding to our own triggers.
0: So we talked about overworking a bit. I'm certainly prone to that. Like in the framework of Valerie Young's imposter syndrome, I am the expert. So I never know enough. And I have to keep working and working and working so I can keep proving myself. Mm. So how do you know what is the optimal amount of work? If you know that you're prone towards this overworking behavior, but you know that you need to work at something to improve at it, how do you know where that where that line or that range is?
1: That's a great question, Sonia. That is a fabulous question because I have been told by a lot of my students that I have workaholic tendencies, right? <laughs> <laughs> In fact, the job with me, I rem- I always remember this, but there is one evening Years ago, when I was working in my practice, one of my students walked into my office and he said, Patricia, are you bringing your bed to the office? <laughs> <laughs> and and I remember, you know, I have a soft smile, right? And then I laugh, you know, and my student teased me. But inside me, there was also some sadness. I felt unseen because, of course, I duplicated about my work. And why should I measure how many hours I put into it? So. Over the years, over the years, I have learned to distinguish when I am getting lost into these overworking behaviors and when they are revitalizing and engaging and, I, and, and you know, it's healthy for me to do more. A myth, a myth that has been, I think, well spread in pop psychology is that, that there is, you have to find this balance because between work life and your personal life. And there is you know, a bunch of people, a bunch of organizational psychologists like Adam Grant, that they have deconstructed this myth. We're never going to find the 50-50 you know, balance or this perfect balance between the different areas of our life. What I encourage people, and I have written a lot in the book, is that it is important to notice how in your life you travel in seasons or you develop your own rhythms our lives have different areas our friendships parenting our career personal health recreation and funny stuff that we have to do and given that we have limited amount of time and a limited amount of hours we're often faced with this values conflict it's like okay do I I spend five hours riding on Sunday or do I go for a bike ride with my partner, right? Two things are important, right? Mm-hmm. And when you are want to do things right and perfectly, this feels like, oh my gosh, what do I do? It feels like a torture having to make a choice. So I think it is important also to give ourselves permission to make a choice, not an optimal choice. And when you choose something that matters to you, you're also saying no to something that matters to you. I mean, you may want to give yourself permission to grieve the choice you have made. But when you make those choices and your knowledge that they're going to be imperfect, you're also going to have the freedom to say in the next three months, I will prioritize, let's say, my friendships. And then in May, I will prioritize recreation and fun time. And then let's say in September, I will pick up again with my career. So it's giving ourselves the permission to make a choice, not a perfect choice, that will help us to find a rhythm that is more context-based and is not rule-based. The rule is always work harder and harder and make sure that you are the best parent, you're the best mom, you're the best podcaster, you're the best psychologist, right? And we try to do all these things in all areas of our life. So that is not a sustainable model that giving ourselves permission to make a choice, to grieve some of the choices we make, is going to help us to find our rhythms. So I think it's not, you know, it's not a, it's not a simple or short response. But I think that when we're prone to overwork, it's important to check, you know, what's happening in other areas of your life. And if you want to have a fulfilling life, that means that you're going to put some energy and time in different areas of your life at different times because it will be hard to do everything at once.
0: Yeah, I love that you talked about conflicting values because Mm -hmm. you're right, that happens all the time. And especially if you love your work, which you do and I do. Like I actually love to work a 12-hour day. I think it's so fun, but I have to hold myself back from doing that because I know that that's not good for me over the long run. And just like what you said, I call it intentional imbalance with these rhythms. Mm -hmm. I I choose to have that. And I say, I'm going to be focused on you know this one area this th- for this this month or this quarter or these weeks, and then the next time I'm going to be more focused on this type of thing and that's you can even do that within your own work like that people ask me how do you wear so many hats and do so many different things and it's by doing that it's not by doing everything well all the time, but it's mm-hmm. by prioritizing what are the things that are most important right now that's um, beautiful yeah.
1: i love I love this concept of intentional imbalance, and <laughs> um, if it's okay, can I ask a little bit more? I know for myself, because I'm super passionate about what I do, like you, I may enjoy a 12, 15 hours day of work, right? It's my passion. I will be super excited with that, right? <laughs> but I know it's not sustainable, right? My body feels it. My mind feels it. So I, I have committed to myself and I have promised myself to not overdo things. Sometimes, you know, I have to give myself permission to overdo things because it happens. But in general, over the years, I have told myself, okay, the day has X number of hours. And in this month, I'm focusing in these three values of my life, right? And I, I'm literally every month I'm tracking how I'm doing, how, how I'm living my values. And if, let's say like at 5 p.m., right, when I want to pause and take a break to go to the gym, and I have this urge, this star says, Patricia, it's just one more email. It's just one more email. It would be like one second, right? <laughs> and I'm like, ah oh. <laughs> you know that feeling, right? Oh, like, yeah. <laughs> oh. <laughs> uh, so in those moments, I know I remind myself, Patricia, what are you committing to? What are you committing? And when I engage in moving physically, right, I think that helps me to go to my next. But that is something that, you know, I have to read over the years. How do you manage that tiny thought that says, just one more email, just one more interview, just one more call, knowing that if we keep doing that, we're going to have the 12, 15 mm-hmm. hours because it's never just one more email, right? Because then we tell ourselves, no, can do this other one too, you know, this one is easy, right? And then we look at the clock, three hours pass by. How do you handle that?
0: <laughs> I'm smiling because I, I don't think there's ever a time where you have that 100% perfect. Yes. I think like what you said, noticing the behavior, because I do that all the time and I'm a professional athlete. I need to train, but I often am so excited about my other work that <laughs> an hour goes by and I haven't gotten on my bike yet. And I get frustrated that I haven't gotten on my bike yet. But for me, it, it was more about learning about the theory of well-being from Mar- Marty <laughs> Seligman and cool. learning that it's not just about achievement and about you know this work and engagement piece. Like Those are parts of the theory of well-being, but there's relationships and there's other pieces in life that make you feel more fulfilled. and also mm-hmm. learning that, like the positive emotions associated with happiness, those come from lots of different areas. And by diversifying that, then I'm going to be even better at my work, even if I spend less time doing it.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I'm so glad that you bring that up. You know, one one of my favorite chapters in the book was talking about how we're wired for distraction. Our brains are not designed to keep going on and on and on, right? So, another micro skill for me, and I encourage people to try this, is to schedule your reset times. In my calendar, every three months, there are actually reset times. And during the day, I literally have that reader like reset time to Mm -hmm. simply connect right? To simply disconnect from whatever I'm doing and distract myself. You can distract yourself with music, going for a short hike, going for a short walk, watching YouTubes of people that you like. But I think we have to acknowledge that in order to have a fulfilling life and to protect our well-being, we have to just make room for our brain to distract our brain by nature is going to go on there. So uh, to me, it has been very helpful to build that in my uh, schedule, to have reset times, to just chill and let myself disconnect a little bit.
0: Yeah, something that you said earlier made me think, you said talking about the best podcaster, the best athlete, like the word best, mm-hmm. when best is sort of an evaluation based on maybe not even your own evaluation. Maybe the best is like Apple podcast chart or you know, whatever the thing is. And I think that best can become decoupled from process. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times you can have a process and still not quote be the best because you can't control if you're the best relative to somebody else. So from a high achieving and perfectionist behavior, how do you wrestle with doing your best, having process, but without comparison?
1: Well, I have a I have a little story for you to answer that question. Can I, can I share this? Yeah, of course. <laughs> so... During COVID, all the gyms got closed, and that was very stressful for me because I exercise to keep my body healthy and to clean my mind, right? If I don't mm-hmm. exercise, I will be a walking mess. <laughs> I don't need to exercise. I tried to go for a run, but then my knees were hurting. And then after maybe four or five months, one bike in a store got open. So I quickly drove, and I got myself a bike. And that's why I started biking. Nice. Um, it has been a lifesaver. I can tell you that. I can tell you it has been. I absolutely love to go for a bike ride. Like every Sunday, I'm up there in the mountains. I am not as tough as you are. <laughs> oh, maybe you are. <laughs> I'm not sure. <laughs> but, but I absolutely enjoy it. So it's something that I completely know this right away, how it changed my mood. Right, even though sometimes I was maybe feeling tired, you know, doubting that I could go, I could ride my bike over the mountain. It was so refreshing. It's such a sensitive experience, you know, the smells, the sounds, what you see. And then finding that two men, the two men with your body on the bike, right? But of course, of course, because the mind does its own minding. When I was riding my bike and I was like, maybe having sharpness of breath, having all these this doubting thoughts, can I do this? I'm not going to make it, blah, 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 blah. And then there was this group of bikers riding next to me, you know, so easily like, (laughs) (laughs) and then I look at them and my mind will say, I never will be like them. There's no way I'm going to ride my bike like them. And then I will look a little bit above in the mountain and then you will see this, you know, other bikers. The mind will compare. In any situation we are in, whether you are parenting your child, whether you're writing a book, whether you're doing an interview, let's acknowledge that our mind as a content generating machine, of course, is going to compare. Now, the challenge is when we hold, hold on to those comparisons as our metric to measure ourselves. Right. Like if my mind says, oh, my goodness, Sonia, she's a professional biker. I have to ride my bike like her. That may, you know, I can be inspired by you. Right. But if I hold on to that as the rule, I may not acknowledge my context, my body constitution, the type of bike I have, the type of area in which I'm riding my bike. So I think acknowledging that our that mind will compare is the first step to just make room for our mind to its own minding. But then noticing what you're holding onto those comparison thoughts as rules. And how do we know we're holding a thought as a rule? Because we're, you know, perceiving that there is one single way to do things, right? That like one behavior matches the rule, versus checking what's my context right now in this given moment? What is doable to me without losing myself? I think that that the part that says, what can I do? that is consistent with my values without losing myself is important because we may push ourselves to do hundreds of things and then go to bed tired, exhausted, wake up cranky. And, you know, we don't go to the gym. We don't hang out with our friends. So I think acknowledging the comparison thoughts, checking your values. Checking what's doable for you in your given context without losing yourself, I think that is one way of handling that. That we can do what matters without holding onto those comparison frames as rules for ourselves. Because our context, every person's context, is going to be different. There is never the same, and there is so much that happens in our life that requires that. With dance, with things that happen in our life versus trying to do the same step over and over. That's when we get stuck.
0: Yeah. And our context changes as our life changes. Like having children was a big shift in context for myself. And I think that a lot of times when people compare themselves to a previous version of themselves, potentially, they can get stuck as well because maybe your inputs are now different or your expectations are different or even the weighting of your values have changed.
1: Yeah. 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 Thank you for bringing that up. I think that's another metric that we have. You know, I was able to do this in the past, you know, 20 years ago. I should be able to do it now. When we think about body image, for example, how common is that people will say, oh, but my body looked like this then. I wanted to look the same. Right. And we started overdoing things, you know, engaging in restrictive diets that make us feel tired and we don't think clearly later on. I think it is important to hold our comparison thoughts as part of our mind, and also to acknowledge that it is hard. Sometimes some things are hard. Letting go of the past, of the things that we're able to do in the past is not easy. But continue to push ourselves to do something without acknowledging our context. I think it's much harder and adds much more suffering into our life. I remember when I started writing that's another story of comparison thoughts. So the first the first book that I wrote, I co-authored it with my mentor and his best friend. There was we were at a psychology conference and we're having dinner and my mentor very kindly looked at me and says, "I want to invite you to co-write this book with me." And I'm still a graduate student, maybe my second, third year, an immigrant with the accent you hear today. And I start crying. And I remember saying, I can't, you know, there's no, you know, it's not my first language. I cannot do this. And he said, I think you are ready. And I say, I can't. Very quickly holding on to a rule, right? I quickly limit myself. And then four weeks later, I was knocking in his office door. <laughs> and then I say, OK, let's do it. That was the first book that I, I wrote, I co-authored with my mentor, and like his friend. Uh, and I can tell you that my mind was, again, comparing myself with their writing. They have written at least five, you know, 10 books by then. It was my first book. So the process was very different. But I remember also that, that I was very scared and very anxious about how my writing will be and what will they think. And I will try to tell myself, okay, you know, just keep going, right? Sometimes we want to power through things because we think that is the effective thing to do. The challenge is that powering through things takes a lot of mental energy. So I think compassionate responses, uh, being kind on ourselves, when noticing these comparison thoughts, in some way free us to make our next move in a more effective way.
0: I wanted to talk about perfectionism as it relates to obsessive and harmonious passion. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that that's a super interesting place to go. And people might not even know what those two types of passion are. Um, Can you talk about perfectionism and these two types of passion?
1: That's a really cool concept, right? When I think about harmonious passion, I will invite you to chime in with me. I am thinking about this this maybe mindset of doing what we what is revitalizing and engaging to us in a congruent in, this incongruence with our values that also find the rhythm to get things done, and that we also put a lot of perhaps wise effort into doing this these activities. I think that. It requires that we are in a tune with our body experience, with our values, but we also are in this attunement in a soft way with what our environment. So I think that will help us to have more like a fulfilling life and a fulfilling day. But I'm curious how you think about harmonious passions.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that harmonious passion is doing the activity for the sake of the activity itself without mm-hmm. totally losing yourself. but without being constricted by it. Because I think that you can become obsessed with the thing that you're working towards, even if you love it. And you, you start detaching from the original reasons why you started doing it in the first place. And the overworking piece can relate to that of, okay, I got to write this perfect book. It has to be a bestseller. And like the reason why you started writing the book in the first place was because you were passionate and an expert in an area that you wanted to share information, but it becomes less about sharing that information and more about this outcome thing that you're trying to grasp to prove yourself or to hang your worth onto.
1: Mm, mm, I, think, I think that's a beautiful, I think, description. When I was driving the bike, I, this is, I think, a real life example. Of course, my mind was comparing a lot of comparison facts, but also we we focus sometimes on the right tool, the right app, the right technique, right? That's another way that we limit ourselves. We need to have the Mm -hmm. right microphone and this and that, right? Mm -hmm. And everything shifted for me when I started listening to what my legs were feeling when I was pedaling, because I will feel when I have to press a little bit harder, then I knew that it was time to change the gear. So I think to your point and your question, harmonious passions requiring more attunement with our internal process and to have self-inquiring, right? What's really driving this? Uh, Because the mind will always be there chasing an outcome, chasing, you know, to be seen in a particular way, avoiding failure. So I think it's important to just really tap into that and adjust our behavior accordingly.
0: Yeah, I think that a lot of times and I'm guilty of doing this myself, like we demonize wanting to have a specific outcome or achieve certain recognition. But as humans, we we want that. I mean, that's just part of being a human being. So having the right relationship with those things and how that impacts your behavior. That's something that I think about a lot.
1: Yeah, yeah. And that's the key question, Sonia, right? It's it's having a relationship that can be nurtured, that can be grown in a way that we can live uh, our la- values, be who we want to be without losing ourselves. I think, yeah, there is. A, it's easy to minimize perfectionistic actions as healthy or unhealthy, adaptive or maladaptive, or good and bad. And certainly there is a lot of writings with those terms in pop psychology and also in academic writings. But the reality is that, I think having more flexible views that really help people to accept the proneness to do things right and perfectly are much more liberating and actually reduce, you know, the, the pain that we throw through ourselves.
0: I was thinking a little bit about this book. Uh, it's called from strength to strength by Arthur Brooks. And I just thought that was such a cool book about, different types of uh, crystallized intelligence. And I'm forgetting the name of the intelligence for younger people. You- Fluid intelligence. Fluid. Right? Thank you. Yeah. So in the book, there is a story about this woman who is a high achieving executive. And it was displayed as two conflicting things of a desire to be special versus a desire to be happy. And this woman realized that her behaviors and her overworking was because she really had a strong desire to be special in other people's eyes. And mm-hmm. that was coming at the expense of her happiness. But she she chose. She she realized she was doing this, but she still chose that her desire to be special over the desire to be happy was more important. And that's something that I think about a lot because a lot of strivers, a lot of achievers, a lot of pushers, we want to be special. We want to feel relevant. It can be for the sake of the activity itself because we're passionate about a topic, but you still want to have that specialness. And if you don't get the specialness that you think you deserve, then you might not feel happy. So, like being aware of these these two conflicting desires can be really challenging in knowing how to have the right relationship with those?
1: I think I think it's very tricky. You're tapping into a very, I think, important dilemma, right? And there are so many ways to respond to that. But what I do appreciate, I haven't read a book, what I do appreciate of the story that you mentioned of this person that has to choose between the desire to be happy or the desire to be special is that it's acknowledging that there is no right choice here, Right. And it's mm-hmm. another that she, she was very authentic with herself, right? Mm-hmm. I, think, <laughs> I think often we hold on to stories to keep doing what we're doing. And mm-hmm. in the way we lie to ourselves, not intentionally, but we hold on to stories that protect us from our truth because facing the truth may make us feel ashamed or will mean that we're going to be rejected by others. So you just describe a person that, you know, I'm sure a lot of people will have said, choose to be happy But she chose what it was authentic for her in the moment. And sometimes we make choices in life that may not be the best ones, may not be the ideal ones. But as long as they are choices that we're making knowing what we're getting into, I, I think that that's life. No life goes to be lived in a perfect way. And I think we learn from that, and then we, you know, there is always going to be a next. Hopefully, for a lot of us, right? But the authenticity of that dilemma, I think, it's important because a lot of high achievers, I'm sure they have to, they have heard messages. No, 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 just choose to be happy. Choose the other thing. Mm-hmm. It's hard. It is hard when people feel that if you make that choice, you're wasting your potential, or mm-hmm. you're not in the life that you want to live, right? Mm-hmm. So I think making a choice with authenticity. And knowing what you're choosing and what it means to you, uh, I think that's a different process as well.
0: Yeah, something else that I wrote down, and I think I got this from your book, but it might have come from somewhere else, is I wrote down the inability to celebrate success. And -hmm. that's something that I struggle with. I'll work hard towards something and I'll reach a milestone or something is successful. But Mm -hmm. I just am like, eh, whatever, on to the next. And I'm wondering if this inability to celebrate success comes from this high-achieving mindset and also maybe tied to that when-then thinking that you talk about in your book.
1: Yeah, yeah. That's a great question. Here's what I can tell you in, you know, based on the work I have done with my clients and also my personal experience. When we think about people who are prone to deprecate about what they do, they get reinforced intrinsically by doing things right and perfectly. It's really how, how you feel about yourself when you're getting a particular when you're participating in a particular project or activity. So I think that also comes with certain type of humility, that you're not doing it for others. You want to have perhaps impact in other people's life, but fundamentally you are doing the right thing because it feels good to you, because it's consistent with your values. The challenge with that sometimes is we don't give ourselves to savor how it feels, you know, how was the process? What did I learn okay. from it? And we quickly may go into the next. So I think there is, and, and I think a lot of um, different models of well being have talked about this a skill of savoring experiences, right? Which to me comes with, self-reflecting and having like a post-mortem a little bit after you have completed a project or you have reached a particular outcome or you have reached a milestone, right? And making room for the experience of that comes for you after that. I know for me, for example, after every single book I have put out there, there is a there is a sadness that comes. Because I'm not, you know, reading, you know, all the papers for that particular topic because I'm not chasing, you know, I'm not torturing my friends. Do this make sense? What do you think about this This metaphor? Right. I'm not sending random texts to people. I'm not sitting in front of that computer, you know, to write. So there is this, this sadness that comes because I am done with a creative project. There is also the excitement and the fun part. But so learning to make room for that right? Sabling the experience that comes with all types of feelings. I think it is important part of our process to to keep growing and doing what matters. I think rushing and going to the next, sure, we are prone to do that perhaps, but it doesn't mean that it's going to be effective to keep going on and on and on.
0: Yeah. Something that you said there that I found really helpful was a way to celebrate success because that was something that I used to think about, of well, you go out to dinner to celebrate this thing, or you go do this thing. These are how people celebrate. But to me, those felt inauthentic. Yeah. And you just said, looking back at the thing that you accomplished, and in my mind, I started thinking about the ways that you've grown or the things that you've learned. That's a great way to celebrate success without having to do something that might feel forced, like going out to dinner or you know doing something big, drinking a bottle of wine or whatever the thing is.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, thank you for saying that. I, I find like like you, you know, sometimes after some projects, there is a celebration time, but I find it much more revitalizing for me to really pause and check what the project meant to me, how it feels that it's it's done, that I completed, make room for the feelings that come, right? Uncomfortable and uncomfortable ones to check in. What have I learned? What have I learned about myself? I think those moments of self-inquiry are one way of to really just celebrate what you have, what you have pursued for hours and hours versus doing the traditional things.
0: Yeah, I do health and wellness coaching and also mental performance coaching. And a big part of that is actually helping people celebrate their small successes, but also summarizing how far they've come in a period of time. Mm -hmm. And it's always amazing to see how far people have come and to take the time to actually like using your words to savor that. And most of us don't make time for that. We don't make time to write about the things that went well, or to talk to somebody about the things that we've accomplished or that we've learned in the, in a time period. And yeah, that's something that, like, I think maybe that's why people like the new year. They like looking back at the year because maybe that is their time to celebrate their successes.
1: Yeah, yeah. You see, I, the yeah the challenge with doing only the new year time. I think that. It's a one time thing. But what I do believe is having that as part of our, you know, regular day-to-day life. Um, things that I have that have been very helpful to me and I'm sure you have other tips here as well. As start of my quarterly schedule is to do an audit, an audit of my time, an audit of how I'm living my values. That's other thing that for me has to be booking my calendar, right? It's like a sign time out mm. of your life. I keep track of how I'm living my values on a monthly basis. Nothing fancy in my whiteboard in my office. I basically have three areas of my life that are very important to me. And I'm checking week by week whether I'm getting closer to the values or I'm getting farther away. Mm. So that Mm -hmm. self-reflection is for me weekly. And then quarterly, I check, where am I putting my time? What am I doing this engaging, revitalizing versus the things about draining energy, the things about taking me closer to the values and taking farther away? So I think having that built into our schedule will allow us to to really pause more versus going along with a hustle culture that we live these days to do more and more and have more and more. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. When you say the word audit, I feel a negative like thought because you think about the IRS auditing you. Um, <laughs> but I, I think it's okay. important, it is important to be objective and try to look for ways that you can improve and be better. But I do think it's important to, to look at the things that went well. And I think that we tend to focus on all the things that didn't go well or on all the things that were lacking instead of all the things that we do have.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, that's another thing that our brain will do, right? We are <laughs> going to have negative bias, right? Yes. <laughs> the men and they kept women, of course, they needed to anticipate what could go wrong. Am I going to die? Is there going to be food? You know, how the weather looks. And they need they also needed to keep track of what went wrong. So we are walking these days in the information era with a brain that is prone to focusing what could go wrong, right? But I think to your point, learning to hold all the layers of reality coexisting with each other is also what is going to help us to have a fulfilling
0: life, right? Uh, do you have time for one last topic? Mm-hmm. So it was around, con- you always hear control the controllables. And this was a question that was asked me on my podcast, or somebody. I was on somebody else's podcast a while ago. And I said, Yes control the controllables, but if you have a white knuckle death grip on those controllables, you also mm. have to learn how to let go a little bit. And I think this kind of ties into what you were saying at the very beginning of the podcast about flexibility mm. around these things. So you know where is the zone of controlling the controllables but also not controlling them too tightly?
1: Yeah yeah to me they all it all goes back and I'm using at lenses to answer your question. To me, it all goes back to check if I'm holding into into my thoughts or my emotions with white knuckles, like like this. I'm making a mm-hmm. fist right now, and when you're making a fist, you will notice, you know, how you how you know you're putting pressure on your hands, how your fingers feel, right? If I'm holding like this. I'm extending and opening my hand right now. In life, many times when when we hold things with white knuckles, making a fist again, it takes a lot of energy and effort. Mm. But flexibility means walking in life and holding your thoughts and emotions as you're opening your hand. You will have much more movement to choose. So I think it makes sense sometimes controlling the controllables, but always checking, am I holding them too rigidly or flexible? How do we know that? By checking our experience. Right. Am I getting stressed stress if there is a variation of this? If things go wrong, right? Or am I, you know, giving myself permission to accept that even I'm doing my best, some things will be literally out of my control. So I think checking that internal experience is helpful.
0: Well, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. That time absolutely flew by. I couldn't believe how quickly when I looked at the clock. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, where, where can people find your work and find more and, and your podcast too?
1: Thank you. Well, and thank you for all the questions. They were very juicy questions, as I will say. <laughs> <laughs> I absolutely love them, all of them. And I do have a website, is www.thisisdrz.com. And the podcast is called Playing It Safe. It's, I, I talk a lot about fear-based struggles and how to navigate ineffective playing it safe moves like rumination and overthinking, catastrophizing, doubting, That's my cup of tea, of course. You're talking
0: about my my day.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And my mind too. (laughs)
0: Thank you so much for having me. Thanks. It was a pleasure. I hope you enjoyed that energy packed episode with Dr. Z and maybe even identified some high achieving behaviors that may not be serving you or someone around you. If you think that somebody else would benefit from this show, please share it with your friends because that is the best way to get the message out there. And that is ultimately why we do this is because we want to help people be better. If you like topics like these, I've been sending out lately. It's been about a monthly newsletter instead of a weekly newsletter about high performance and well-being. And you can get that at sondialooney.com slash newsletter. I also am on Instagram and I've been posting videos more like snippets and sound bites from things that I've learned through my reading and podcasts. So feel free to follow me on Instagram, and that is at Sonia Looney. I am so grateful that you are here and that you are committed to this personal journey of growth and our mission to be better every day. And I'm right there with you. I'll see you right back here next week with another great episode.